Your lovely leader, David Roderick, set me the exciting challenge of preaching from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 on the coming of the Lord, the second coming, and what happens to Christians when they die. So those are two uh, brilliant um, things to think about, aren't they? And um, So if you've got Bibles with you, we're going to be looking actually a bit kind of technically in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and towards the end of it. But when we think about what happens to Christians when they die, you know, I'm going to be 65 in two months' time. Don't get my old age pension yet, because they keep moving the goalposts, don't they? Have you had that experience? I thought I'd be retired. But anyway, they keep moving the goalposts. But nevertheless, 65 feels, you know, feels older than I'd like to feel. <laughs> and I worked out I've lived about three quarters of my life. And that's just started to hit me because I've kind of lived life up till now, kind of feeling I'm more or less immortal. You know, you kind of, you don't think that, uh, you know, oh, well, one day I'll go and do this. One day I'll go and do that. You know, maybe I'll go. I've never been to Barcelona. Why not? Oh, or whatever. You, you, you kind of, and then you think, actually, time is running out. And um, I've been really a kind, of, kind of aware of my mortality just because I've been enjoying planet Earth. I, I like planet Earth quite a lot, actually, you know. I, I enjoy the beauty of the world, and I enjoy um, people and food, and you know. But I realise at this time of my life, I need to have a real appetite for Jesus. I need a real appetite for the day of, of the age to come, because actually that's where I'm heading, and it's not too far off. Because to be honest, my life, looking back over the three quarters of it, it's gone pretty quick. So there's a word to you if you're young in the congregation today, like um, Bonnie, you know, just a young woman like you. Honestly, it goes quick. So uh, make the most of it and cultivate that appetite for the kingdom of heaven. But um, for the early church, what happens to Christian when, when, when you die was quite a big deal because for many of them, they believed that the coming of Jesus Christ was going to happen within the first generation of the Christian church. It's going to happen in their lifetimes. Jesus himself has said, you know, heaven and earth will, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And, and, and in Matthew 24, um, he said, if I can read it, because I want to be authentic. Um, Jesus said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so, the early church were kind of thinking, well, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And they were, and so I guess they probably f- believed that the return of Jesus would lead to the establishment fully of the kingdom of God on earth. And that, um, people would enter into the joy of their Lord. And maybe the people who died would have missed it. And so they were quite concerned about the dead. What's happened to them? Where, where are they? And what, what's going on? So, Paul's trying to address some of those questions, I think, in Thessalonians 4. So I'll read to you, and you can read with me if you've got a Bible. So Paul says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So part one of my talk will be just as simply, what happens to dead Christians? Where are they? Now, of course, in the time of the Bible, there was a group of Jews of, of, of whom Paul was one when he was still Saul, before he was a believer, actually, who believed in the resurrection of the dead. And there were other groups of Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they believed that when you died, you went to a very shadowy place called Sheol. And Jesus himself taught about the resurrection. In fact, there's some quite uh, interesting words um, that I'm going to read to you from John's Gospel, John chapter 5, which are the words of Jesus about resurrection. So John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. Excuse me. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yeah, really interesting words. That two, you know, resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment. What does that mean? And, and I guess that um, my own little thought about that one is that for those of us who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, in some ways, the day of judgment has already happened. It happened on the cross. It happened when Jesus bore the sins of the world. It happened when those who trusted in Jesus, looking back to that day on the cross, can know that for them, forgiveness is complete. And so we have no fear of judgment. And in fact, all the signs of the end of the world broke out when Jesus died on the cross. The sun went dark. There was an earthquake. The dead rose from the tombs, Matthew records. Things that happened at the end of the world happened in advance in a little window there. And that spoke of, of, a, of a time when for us in Christ, for us, judgment day is a day of hope, not a day of fear. It's a day about reward, not a day of punishment. And there, there's kind of like two judgments that are, are, are kind of referenced by, by John there. So I think for the dead in Christ, let's not fear a day of judgment. But I love the words that um, are often used about death by Paul here and also by Jesus himself about that we have fallen asleep. So where are the dead in Christ? Have we just fallen asleep? Um, Jesus said to those who were questioning when he went to raise Jairus' daughter, you know, and, and, and he, he said, she's asleep. And, I've, and, um, and when he took her hand, the little girl got up, it was like her waking from asleep, even though she died. And do you remember in John 11, when, it, when we hear about Lazarus who died, and, and Jesus had stayed away, and Lazarus died, and, and Jesus said, we're going to go and wake him up. And he said, well, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. No, he's died. 
but we're going to raise him from the dead. And you know, again, we have in advance this little picture of what Paul is saying is going to happen on a universal um, platform on that final day, that there will be a resurrection for the dead. And um, that means that for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, when we grieve, we don't grieve as the world grieves. As Paul says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Now, I guess probably in the room, most people will have lost loved ones at some time. And if you've lost loved ones, you grieve. It's not that grief is something that as Christians we shouldn't have in our lives because it's such a wonderful thing. You know, one of, one of, the, um, one of my colleagues... Her mum is in the Salvation Army, and, and she's, she actually died last week. And the phrase that the Salvation Army uses, promoted to glory. And it's a great phrase, but it doesn't mean to say that we don't grieve. We're not in denial that for us, left behind, there is real loss, real pain. And premature death is always particularly tragic. Uh, you know, for me, both of my parents died in their 90s, and in a way, it was an easy thing, even though... There were those losses of those foundational relationships. It was easy to say they've gone to be with the Lord and for them suffering is finished and the, the aging process is no more. And they're looking forward to meeting one day with the resurrection bodies and all of that. You know, we can, we can be joyful and yet we experience loss, but we don't have no hope. And it's very challenging for people who don't know where their relatives stand, where their friends stand with Jesus Christ. Have they got hope or not? And actually, in a, in a sense, as, as far as Scripture is concerned, there are some things that we trust, and we trust in the mercy of God. We trust in the love of God. We trust that God wants to rescue everything that can be rescued, save everyone that can be saved. And it's not God's will that anyone should perish. And, and, and the Bible talks about the fact that even the day of his coming is postponed as long as possible because God is not willing for anyone to perish. But we also recognize that there are ultimate things. And ultimately, if we do not say to God, your will be done, God says to us, your will be done, as C.S. Lewis put it. And we, we have the option, if you like, to opt out of being in God's kingdom where he's Lord. If we selfishly and stubbornly hold on to our own desire to be Lord of our lives. And I think that's the final absolute that we can be really certain of. God is merciful but he also allows us to opt out of his mercy. And we opt out of his mercy whenever we don't recognize him and make him as Lord. The speculation, can he be saved beyond the grave? Matthew 25, the gospel um, there, when Jesus has that story about the sheep of the goats and people who say, Jesus says, come to me and, and enter into my rest. And, and I said, well, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. They said, well, when did we do that, Lord? He said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And, and there is a sense that, that even people who didn't recognize that they were serving God in their own um, lifetime may have actually been pursuing his kingdom all the time and find that beyond the grave, they had the opportunity to recognize the one they've really been in their hearts seeking for all this time. But that is speculation. It's not, um, um, people would differ on that interpretation of that, that gospel. What we do know is that Jesus' words bring life. I, I love in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, 
we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise. Paul himself it says, I'm bringing you a word. It's a word that you can hold on to. It's a life-giving word. It's a word you can trust. It's a word from the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise. We are not left without a hope. And when I read that, I, again, I go back to John's Gospel and to the raising of Lazarus. And again, if you're familiar with that story, you'll remember that Jesus has stayed away from the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. I think with the deliberate intent to allow him to die in order that he might be raised. And when he finally gets there, Mary and Martha both say to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus enters into their now grief, even though there's a future hope. Even though he knows he's gone to raise Lazarus from the dead, he grieves with those who are grieving now. And Jesus weeps in that passage. He weeps with Mary and Martha. And that's, um, for us, a really helpful understanding that grief itself is something which God understands, even though there's a hope of the future. The present now is painful. And we want to have God with us in our pain, don't we? As well as having a future hope. But then it says, Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you, if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What an extraordinary sight that would have been for those onlookers. So memorable, so brilliantly recorded by John. But what is going to be like when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and all the dead rise? We've seen it with Lazarus. One day it's going to be with everybody. What an extraordinary phenomenon that's going to be. And actually, I believe we're going to be witnesses of that. What we experience now of the power and the glory of God is just a minuscule taste of what we will experience and see with our own eyes when we see him face to face when he returns. So, um, when will he return? Maybe I ought to, before I answer that question, it might be just worth asking the question, the dead in Christ. I said that, that, that you know, there's a hope for us, but where are they? Are they asleep? What does that mean? And I guess for me, uh, I don't know if, if we can have an absolute on that one. It may well be that it's the experience of having resurrection bodies that will happen. That, that somehow the, the dead in Christ are waiting like we are for resurrection bodies. And um, we'll not precede them, but they'll precede us in that. It's speculation because we have hints and whispers from the, beyond the grave. But it's certainly true that many people um, have experienced, um, if you like, an awareness of the dead in Christ who have in some way connected with them 
Um, one, of, one of the kind of famous ones, C.S. Lewis again, he pops up everywhere, certainly for me. But J.B. Phillips, the uh, Bible translator, do, do you know J.B. Phillips? Um, he had, a, uh, after C.S. Lewis died, died C.S. Lewis kind of like appeared to J.B. Phillips. <laughs> and it's kind of, um, there, there he was. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to make of that little story, but um, two extraordinarily significant Christians of the last century. But it wasn't as if the solid, substantial new body, it's just kind of like a hint, a whisper of, just to give us assurance that they're in Christ. And I think many Christians over the centuries have had assurances that it's okay, that the person I loved is with Christ somehow. Maybe they're in a kind of state of being, maybe a state of sleep or rest, Maybe what it means when Jesus said to the dying thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, that walled garden is paradise. It's, a, it's not the full new heavens and new earth. It's a place of rest and, and being with the Lord, waiting until somehow all together, those who have died and those who are still alive will meet the risen Jesus Christ as he comes to establish forever his new heavens, his new earth kingdom. And I, I, I suppose that's what I kind of lean to, that there's going to be a kind of climactic moment of new and recreation that the dead in Christ are waiting for along with us who are alive. But I think they're kind of aware of us. Aware of us. They're like a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on in a way that we're not quite aware with, with them. And of course we're not meant to try and communicate with the dead. That's one thing that the bar's pretty clear is out of order. So, um, But what does it mean then for Christ to return and for us to meet him in the air? For some people, the idea is that we're going to leave planet Earth. That to meet Christ in the air, as Paul writes there, is to leave everything. But other people see it much more of, this is a place where we welcome Jesus and bring him back. In the time of, of the Bible, when a, a great ruler, a king, a, an emperor, or a, or a significant person was going to visit a city, people would come out of the city and bring them in. That even happened to Paul, actually. The Christians came to met him on his way to, to, to Rome and, and brought him into the city. And there's a real sense of, of what it means to meet the Lord in the air is Jesus is coming back, and we get to greet him and bring him back to earth as he establishes his, his rule on earth. Earth isn't somewhere that we leave, but rather something that will be renewed and made new when Jesus returns. But when is that going to happen? Well, in preparation for today, I kind of kind of Googled um, predictions and claims of when the second coming is going to happen. And, and um, I've got a little table of predictions here of when the second coming is going to happen. And, um, of course, I've already said that the early church, kind of, for many of them, they thought it was going to happen in Jesus' lifetime. For people like Hippolytus of Rome or Sextus Julius Africanus, or even the, the, the theologian Irenaeus, they kind of, those early church fathers thought, it's going to happen about 500 AD. That's when it's going to happen. Or um, for a lot of people thought it was going to happen on the millennium. Tom Holland, the um, esteemed popular historian, wrote a book called Millennium, looking at the, the first thousand years and, and all the kind of predictions that it was going to happen around the thousand year mark. And um, the Pope himself was kind of predicting it's going to happen right now. And there were signs in the heavens and all that kind of stuff. People getting ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And, and then throughout the church age, there's been lots of people who've predicted when Jesus was going to come. And um, like the, the, the Anabaptist led by Thomas Munzer, who predicted it was going to happen in 1525. And, um, and then later on, even um, 
Good old John Wesley thought it was going to happen um, sometime before 1836. <laughs> and then lots of people who founded movements, like uh, Charles Teddy Russell, who founded the, the, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. He, he thought it was going to happen um, in, in probably about 1874 was going to happen. And, and then um, Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, kind of believed it was going to happen um, within 85 years of, of, of his own birth. And I could go on and on. And when I was young, well, younger, um, there was a real sense that Jesus is coming soon. You know, people like Hal Lindsey, the great late planet Earth. Did you ever come across that? Um, people were predicting showing Jesus. People like Larry Norman. Larry Norman, anybody? Life was filled with guns and war. And everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. We were kind of like expecting Jesus to come back any time, really. And um, so far... It's not happened. Um, I, could, I could kind of keep giving... We have got some future predictions. Uh, just just so you want to kind of get ready. Um, let's have a look at one, of, one or two interesting ones. Has anyone come across the physicist and uh, writer Frank J. Tipler? Anyone come across him? Well, he's um, he's a, a proper, you know, university um, working physicist who wrote a book called The Physics of Immortality, which he claimed to scientifically prove the existence of God. Uh, and um, he predicts that the second coming of Christ will occur before 2057 and be coincident with a singularity event. So um, there are still people predicting the exact return of Jesus Christ today. But what we do know is that so far, every prediction has been wrong. And that if we know our Bibles well, we should not expect to know when the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is. Let's read the second part of our passage for day, chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you've no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They'll not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for a day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Jesus himself, um, we read it in Mark's Gospel, Mark 13, 22, 32, and Mark 24, uh, in that little passage there about the end of the age. We, we, we read there that, that Jesus himself says, no one knows, not even the Son knows, but only the Father, when that day will be. And Jesus himself used that imagery of coming like a thief in the night. It will be a surprise to people. And it's interesting that there are two key references to the day that comes. Like a thief in the night... And like 
when labour pains seize a woman. And both of those references we find elsewhere in the New Testament, don't we? Paul, when he writes about um, prayer and uh, the work of the Spirit in, in Romans chapter 8, says the whole of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the children of God to come into their own, waiting for their adoption of bodies. What he's really saying there is we're waiting for this new heaven and new earth. We're waiting for resurrection life. We're waiting to have bodies that are whole. And right now we are in pain because of something that we know is wrong with planet earth. And it, it feels like we, we know there's something wrong and we're waiting for something to happen. And that's one perspective on the second coming of Jesus. We know that Jesus is going to come because it can't be, what we have now can't be enough. This is not yet it. Uh, we frequently talk about the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. The fact that the spirit is among us, that the kingdom is here and yet the kingdom is yet to come. And we say that with Paul in Romans 8 because we recognize there is too much tragedy and pain in our world for us to be able to say, hooray, we could just rejoice. It's already happened. Some of those early kind of predictors, um, kind of uh, of the second coming of Jesus, because they're slightly embarrassed about getting it wrong, they say, well, it's really happening heavily. Jesus is ruling from heaven now. St. Augustine was kind of looking at the age of the church, the millennium, the church age. But actually, we're people who are waiting and watching still. We're waiting for the day of the Lord because right now, things that are painful happen. In our congregation today, I heard of one of my young friends, just a newly married young man with a bleed on the brain in Southmead. He used to live with me in my house. That's that's so sad. There's a young mother in our church who's just been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. That's really sad. These are the tragedies that happen even in our own church communities, let alone war and plague and famine, whether it's Sudan or Ukraine or Yemen or climate change or droughts and famines in the Horn of Africa. Whatever it is, we're aware that the world is not as it should be. And we are waiting for the rule of Jesus Christ. And like the early church, we pray, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. But the other picture that's there is, is not a picture of, we know there's something wrong. It's things are going on just normally. It's like a thief in the night. It's surprising. And the other sense that the New Testament gives us of the, of the return of Jesus, people will miss it because life is so ordinary. And it comes at such an unexpected moment. And the counsel of Scripture is, don't get complacent as if crises and end times are not going to happen. Live with the end in mind. I'm sure Stephen Covey said that, but also the Bible says that. Um, live with the end in mind. Live aware that there is going to be a climax and a climactic time. And certainly for all of us, as we look at the world, from time to time we think, is it coming soon? And we know that over 2,000 years of church history, well, Jesus hasn't come yet, but surely the times are, are nearer than they ever have been, just with the passage of time. But also, maybe with the intensity of the speeding up of the changes and crises of our age. The book of Revelation, which takes us through cycles and cycles of um, trauma and acceleration of climactic events, it, it's kind of to my mind, not a bad picture of human history where we kind of go through these circles and it looks like, is it going to happen? And then, no, there's another circle and another circle and a, an intensification of good and evil. And um, in all of that, 
When will it happen? We don't know. We have to keep saying we don't know. But we can say some things for sure. First of all, we know that it will happen. Second of all, we can know that Jesus himself said that the gospel must be preached to all the earth and then the end will come. And that our goal of spreading the good news of Jesus and giving everybody an opportunity to turn to him and belong to him is one of the precursors of the kingdom. And that's why it's an extraordinary thing to live in an age where all over the world more unreached people groups are being reached today than ever before in human history. And a third element of what it means for Jesus to come again is when his bride has made herself ready. Part of what Jesus comes back for, the New Testament affirms, is a bride, a church that has made herself ready. And I think, as you, as you think about why do so many people make predictions about the coming of Jesus? I think the reason is that whenever the church is really in love with Jesus, it feels like it can't be too far off. It feels like suddenly heaven and earth have become quite thin. And I can remember again myself as a, uh, in my 20s being part of a church that was very in love with Jesus. And the worship of the church really incorporated big elements of the return of Jesus. We, someone in our church wrote a song called Maranatha, Jesus Come Again, and the blind will see and rejoice, set the captives free to praise him. You know, and, and it was all about that sense of we're experiencing so much of the joy of God, the presence of his kingdom now. It doesn't feel too far off. And I wonder if that's, that's true of the church age. Rob Scott Cook, when he's talking about this, talks about um, the journey being like, not a journey from the middle of a, of, a, of a continent to the edge of the ocean, but rather a journey along a cliff edge where the sea is always there. And we're on a journey at any time. It's as if we could find a way to the beach. It's like that with, with the life of the kingdom, that there's a potential at every age for the return of Jesus. Maybe in the first century, the potential was there. If the church had done its job of reaching the world, which it almost did, of being pure and holy and in love with him, and, and there's nothing that would restrain, if you like, the return of Jesus. That Jesus says to the Father, look at my bride, isn't she wonderful? I want to be with her. So how do we land in all this, these kind of rather complex and mystical ideas about where we are and when he comes? I think, first of all, our calling is to live in hope. Within this passage, I don't know if you picked it out, but um, we've got faith, hope, and love. I definitely saw it in there. Yeah, here we are. Since we belong today, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And and Paul loves faith, hope, and love. They, they, They pop up often in his writings, most famously, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13. But here they are, faith, hope, and love. And he says about these things, they're eternal, aren't they? They last forever. And as we are people of faith, living in hope, and loving God, and loving one another, there's a sense in which... The issue of where Christians are when they die is slightly irrelevant because we're kind of almost entering into it now. It's like we're already in the dynamic of the age to come as we love God, as we love one another and sense his presence. And the sense of when he returns is slightly, it's not such a big issue for us because we're already sensing his presence is near. We just want more of it. Faith, hope and love. 
We live in them and they're eternal things. We're tasting eternity. The powers of the age to come have broken into our now. And for me, as a follower of Jesus, that's what, how I want to live, as if I'm living in the, in, in the, the, with the age to come already part of my life. But I do think, though that's true, the tension is that we also want to hasten the day of the Lord by being a bride that makes herself ready. And in Peter, it talks about as you, as you wait for him and speed his coming. What does it mean that we have somehow a place to play in speeding the coming of the Lord? Well, I, I think the things I've alluded to, how we live our lives has an eternal element to it. Our willingness to make sure that no one misses the opportunity to know about Jesus. Our willingness to, to live lives that are really in love with him. I suppose just a third thing to say, and I want to close on this one, is where I began. What's your appetite for heaven, for the age to come, for the new heavens and the new earth? When Mary met Jesus in the garden, she tried to hold on to him. She tried to hold on to what she had. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me. And for me, it can be quite tempting to try and hold on to what I have. In fact, that's a problem of um, men and women in the 21st age. There's a whole bunch of um, very wealthy people in California <laughs> spending large sums of money to try and kind of hold on to, to their lives. We've got people um, you know, who are kind of putting their bodies in, in, in suspended deep freeze in, their, in the hope that future science will mean that they can be resurrected in whatever the world will be like that. And even our, our contemporaries are desperate to hold on to life, aren't they? Peter and Lindsay, Pete was telling me he went to see Sting the other day, 72-year-old, still rocking out. And um, one of my housemates went to see Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen who performed an extraordinary three-hour high-energy set as a 74-year-old. Somehow these guys are hanging on to life, aren't they? Um, but however, you know, However fit and healthy and what supplements you take and what you do to your hair and, and all that kind of stuff, we are all going to die unless Jesus returns. And it's great not to hold on to what we have now, but let our appetite for heaven just increase. And the beauty of the Lord, does, does he move you? Does his loveliness and his... Um, his goodness, may you, I want to be close to him. I, I'd love to see you face to face. That's how Paul lived, isn't it? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we want to aspire to that ourselves. So I'm going to pray that for us uh, as I finish. Father God, I want to thank you that you have not left us without hope. And thank you that we believe that one day we will see you. And that we will be reunited with those who have gone before us. And that there will be, in a sense, a joyful homecoming as we see you. And also find ourselves completed as part of your full body, the Church of Jesus Christ, who is your bride. And I want to pray, Lord God, for people today who are mourning, who have sensed loss, who are experiencing the pain of bereavement. Lord God, that you would give them comfort that one day they'll be with you. And for those of us who are kind of thinking about our mortality, Lord God, give us a deeper appetite for you to know that we'll see you face to face and that we'll be, have the joy of resurrection. 
But until that day, Lord, give us as much as we could possibly handle. We want to pray, Lord God, for the powers of the age to come to break into our lives, for your spirit to be at work in this community, in our own minds, hearts, and bodies. Even today, Lord God, as we worship, as we pray, will you come and bring your healing, your blessing? Where, where we're sick, Lord God, may the powers of the age to come break in and bring healing to our bodies. Increase our imaginative eyes to see you as you really are. In Jesus' name, amen.